Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 19. Last week, I covered Aaron's son, Eliezer, then worked through the rebellious trio Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing with the other minor characters and things in Numbers, in this case covering Caleb, the infamous couple Zimri and Cosby, and wrapping up with the various forms of the Semitic deity Baal, including Beelzebub. And with that, let's get started. There are several minor characters in the Numbers narrative. One of these is Caleb. Thinking back to when Moses sent the spies into Canaan for 40 days, only two came back with a positive report. One was Joshua, who I'll cover in more depth in the future. The other was Caleb, a member of the tribe of Judah. He reported, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. His name is related to the Hebrew word for dog, which, at least initially, seems a bit insulting. But then again, dogs are loyal and can be fierce fighters. And in the Hebrew language, the meaning tends to skew in that direction, towards being faithful, devoted, wholehearted, bold, and brave. So, actually very complimentary. And the name seems to fit as he was noted as possessing both astute powers of observation and fearlessness in the face of overwhelming odds. Backing up a bit, like Eliezer, do note that there are a few other Calebs found in the narrative. One was the great-grandson of Judah, and is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 2. Another was the son of Hezron, also mentioned in the same chapter. There is a little bit of confusion about his heritage. Caleb the spy is the son of Jephunneh. Jephunneh is called a Kenizzite in Numbers 32, as well as Joshua 14. The Kenizzites are listed in Genesis 15 as one of the nations who lived in the land of Canaan at the time that God established his covenant with Abraham to give that land to his descendants forever. Overall, though, the Kenizzites are considered an Edomite clan. However, in 1 Chronicles 4, Caleb is mentioned alongside the descendants of Judah. He's also listed as being of Judah in Numbers 13. Got all of that? Here's the deal. The text is confusing. He could have been of the tribe of Judah, or an Edomite, or something else. Or all of the above. What mattered was when he was sent as a spy into Canaan, only he and Joshua weren't intimidated by what they came across, even the giants and the supersized fruit. We're told that because of their reaction to what they found in Canaan, of the twelve spies, only Joshua and Caleb would live long enough to be part of the contingent that finally crossed the Jordan. After this, Caleb went to Joshua and requested an allotment of land in Judah. As a sign of God's blessing and approval, Joshua gives him Hebron. The text also tells us that Hebron was a city of refuge, and therefore was given to the Levites, 
The double assignment is later clarified in Joshua 21, reading that Caleb was given the fields and villages around Hebron. At some point later, Caleb offered up his daughter Aksa's hand in marriage to anyone who had conquered the land of Debir. Caleb's nephew, Othniel, would conquer the land and gain a wife. Outside of the Old Testament, but in traditional Jewish sources, there are other stories about Caleb. One of the more popular is that when the dozen were spying in Canaan, Caleb wanted to bring produce from Canaan back to the encamped Israelites. The other spies were against this, as it would have supported the case for an immediate occupation of Canaan. And of course, ten of the twelve were fearful. Caleb then drew his sword and threatened a fight with the dissenters. They then all agreed to carry a few samples back. A different Midrashic text notes that Caleb was so devoted to God, Moses, and his ancestors that while spying, he left the other eleven to visit Hebron, as well as pay his respects at the tombs of the patriarchs. He also saved the other spies by scaring off giants with his booming voice, all likely leading to the meaning of his name. In the Quran, he is not mentioned by name, but both he and Joshua are referred to as the two of the twelve that trusted God and were not afraid of a direct and immediate taking of Canaan. Essentially, the theme of the Quranic story is the same as the one in Numbers 13. The spies report back, and all but Joshua and Caleb are fearful. As a result, the Israelites wander for another forty years with only the two faithful spies being allowed to live to see the crossing of the Jordan. The next minor characters to cover are a pair mentioned in Numbers 25, Zumri and Cosby. In this chapter, we learn that many Israelite men had begun to have relations with Midianite women. Zimri was one of these men, while Cosby was a Midianite woman. Zimri was the son of Selu, which made him a leader in the tribe of Simeon during the post-Exodus wandering. Then, at either Abelah or Shatim, there was what became known as the heresy of Peor, which is worth a short sidebar. According to the text, the Israelites encamped for a short period on the plain of Moab. This is when they came to know the Moabite women. As a result of this, and due to their exposure to the Moabite culture, some of the Israelite men began participating in the worship of the Moabite gods, including their deity Baal Peor. This deity is typically associated with Mount Peor. While the exact location of the peak is not known, it is generally thought to be northeast of the Dead Sea, which is, of course, in Moab. As for the name Baal, in the Semitic language family, it's generally translated as Lord or Owner, hence why it pops up so much. Baal of various mountains, such as this one, are many others throughout the Old Testament. Back in Numbers, God sees what's going on and is angered. He orders Moses to assemble the chiefs of the tribes and execute the idolaters, an execution by impaling. Gruesome. 
Moses then tells the judges to kill anyone who worshipped Baal. Remember the commandment where God said he was a jealous God? This is what happens, and the executions will mitigate God's anger. At the same time, a plague was ravaging the Israelites. Things haven't settled down, as in the very next paragraph, we're told that an Israelite man, Zimri, brings a Midianite woman, Cosby, into the camp. All within the sight of Moses, who's surrounded by people weeping for their lost leaders. They were at the tent of meeting, so all of this within sight of the holiest place. Then, Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron and son of Eleazar, rises up with a spear, follows Zimri into his tent, and thrusts the spear through both the man and the woman, all while they were likely assuming an indecent posture. This causes the plague to stop, but by then, some 24,000 had died. Fast forward a bit, and in the very last book in the Bible, specifically in Revelation chapter 2, were provided a bit more detail. Do note that just prior to the heresy of Peor's story is a few chapters on Balaam. The prophet would bless Israel, leave the Israelites, and travel back to his home. Revelation reads that after Balaam left the Israelites, he told the Moabite king, Balak, to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. The influx of women is the alleged stumbling block. Back in Numbers, what followed was a war with Midian. There are mentions of Zimri outside of the Old Testament. A few Islamic scholars have proposed that Zimri was also the builder of the golden calf. As for the woman, Cosby, she's thought to have been the daughter of a prominent Midianite named Zur. And that's it for these two. But it does set quite nicely a segue into covering the regional deity, Baal. Like I mentioned earlier, the word Baal, in the native Semitic language, translates to owner or lord, and, in the uncovered written context, it's seen as meaning one of their gods. It was most frequently associated with their storm and fertility deity, Hadad, but did take on local names that varied from town to town. It's in this sense that the use is generally applied in the Bible with over 100 mentions in both the Old and New Testaments. Over time, the use and meaning of the word grew, from strictly a regional deity to a more generic term used to denote the worship of a false god, to the point that during the Protestant Reformation, it was even used by Protestants to mark idols, icons, and saints in the Catholic Church. But I'm getting well ahead of myself, Back in Canaan and Moab, well, really throughout the region, the word was used for their deity, and the specific qualities and powers of that figure varied from city to city. And each city thought that their local high place, meaning hill or mountain, was the dwelling place of the divine. Most places, to one degree or another, used a figure known as Hadad, the storm and fertility god, 
which is an interesting combination. And then something even more interesting. As the worship of Hadad increased in importance, his true name became too holy for anyone except the high priest to speak aloud. At this point, everyone else began to refer to him as Baal, a name that would become far more common and apparently last for thousands of years. As happened in other regions of the world, over time, Baal came to mean different things to different people and may even have led to the similar deity Bel, like is seen in the Deuteronotic portions of the book of Daniel. Over time, Hadad came to be worshipped by the Arameans and Baal by the Phoenicians and other Canaanites, but generally, all from the same source. Ugaritic artifacts present him as a weather idol with particular power over lightning, wind, rain, and fertility. And I know I've mentioned it a few times, but it seems the connection between the weather and fertility is due to their overriding agricultural concerns. The locals even used him to explain why their summers were particularly parched, with the rain returning in the fall. To them, this was because in the summer, Baal would descend into the underworld, only to return as the days got shorter. And the variability in the weather from year to year, especially the seemingly common droughts, would increase his importance to the people. To them, he was the source of the much-needed rain, especially before the arrival of irrigation. Some sources claim that his priest would burn incense while praying to him, and even wear special vestments, which sounds familiar, but is quite common throughout many of the world's religions. He was also seen as the leader of the giant Rephaim, especially those giants who became the rulers of those societies. It was from Canaan that his worship spread to Egypt during the Middle Kingdom, which was between about the 21st and 17th centuries BC. This would place it prior to the Exodus, likely when the Israelites were still living in the North African Kingdom. During the period of the Judges, after the death of Gideon, many Israelites began to worship a deity known as Baal Bereth. It's disputed if this is the same as the Baal mentioned in Numbers, and I'll cover in more depth when I get to that book. Later in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings, it appears that Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, and the wife of Ahab, then the king of Israel, attempted to introduce the worship of Baal again to the Israelites. In this iteration, it's thought that this Baal was the same as the Baal found in Tyre. Tyre is a port city in the modern country of Lebanon. It's really close to Sidon, which was the home city of Jezebel, explaining her connection to this Baal. 1 King chapters 18 tells of a challenge between the prophet Elijah and Jezebel's priest. Both sides offered a sacrifice to their respective gods. Baal failed to light his followers' sacrifice, while Yahweh's heavenly fire burnt Elijah's altar to ashes, even after it had been soaked in water. After this, those in the crowd followed Elijah's instructions to kill the priest of Baal. And after that, it began to rain, showing Yahweh's mastery over the weather. 
and obviously proving that this regional deity wasn't in charge of what he had been historically associated with. Josephus named this Baal as Belus, which is close to the word used for Beelzebub, who I'll get to in a minute. There's much more to Baal, especially his relationships with the other deities in those polytheistic societies, but none of that is really within the scope or concern of this podcast. Do note that he was generally regarded in these societies as being the most powerful of their deities, which certainly helps to explain why he merited a mention in the biblical narrative, while most of the other regional deities did not. The worship of him continued at least as late as the 5th century BC, as in the Tyrian colony of Carthage, he was seen as their most powerful god. In that society, he was commonly depicted as a horned ram and may have even been associated with child sacrifices. I touched on this in Chapter 4, Episode 5, when covering the Canaanite deity Molech. Then, there's another, well, maybe the same deity, with a slightly different form, Beelzebub, a name that, if you're like me, have certainly heard before, but knew really little about. Beelzebub is mentioned in 2 Kings 1 as the name of the Philistine god Ekron. In it, the king of Israel, Ahazari, asks the priest of Beelzebub when he will recover from injuries, injuries sustained in a recent fall. An angel of the Lord tells the prophet Elijah to relay the message that the king will remain bedridden until he dies. All in short order. Of course, God is angry that an Israelite king will pose a question to a foreign deity. Elijah gives the message to Ahaziah's soldiers, who relayed the message to the king. The king asks the soldiers where they got the news from. Then they describe Elijah as a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. The king immediately knows it's Elijah the Tishbite. Of course, I'll cover all of this in more detail at some point in the future. The king sent 51 soldiers to retrieve Elijah, but God rains fire on the soldiers and kills them. The king then sends another 51 soldiers, who are consumed in a similar fashion. Being a bit dense, the king sends a third contingent, but this time their captain takes a different approach and begs Elijah for his life. And it works. God tells Elijah to go with the soldiers to the king. The story goes on, but I'm exiting the rabbit hole here, as this episode isn't about the king nor Elijah, but about Baal. In this case, Beelzebub. Some sources, especially older Jewish sources, and the Septuagint translate his name as the Lord of the Flies, just like the book. This is generally seen as being a creative way of calling him a pile of poop, though an alternate but less popular translation is that he was seen by some as having the power to cause and cure a pestilence of flies. Later, so after the Old Testament, and in the New, Beelzebub was associated with Satan, sometimes translated as a prince of the demons. In Mark 3, 
Jesus is accused by the scribes as driving out demons using the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Jesus turns the tables on his accusers, like he always did, by asking how the devil could drive out the demons. Only someone enabled by the power of God would have the ability to do that. In a work known as the Testament of Solomon, Beelzebub is presented as a prince of the demons. The Testament of Solomon is a pseudepigraphic text said to have been written by King Solomon. Due to its assumed author, it's associated with the Old Testament. But its oldest known copy is in Greek, a language that Solomon would not have spoken. Due to this, and many other reasons, neither the Jewish nor Christian faith considers it canonical. With that caveat out of the way, a bit about the way Beelzebub is presented in it. In this text, he said to have been a former leading heavenly angel who was associated with the star Hesperus. This star is thought by many to also be the name of the planet Venus. Also, the text seems to present Beelzebub as one and the same as Lucifer. He's claimed to cause destruction indirectly, using tyrants as his agents. He also causes demons to be worshipped by men, to excite priests to lust, to cause jealousies and murders in cities, and to bring on war. Finally, the book claims that King Solomon enslaved many demons to build his temple to God. I bet you didn't see that one coming. There are other translations of Beelzebub. In Christianity, at least in some parts, Beelzebub is commonly described as placed high in hell's hierarchy. So, not Satan, but a high-ranking lieutenant. 16th century Dutch writer and demonologist Johann Weyer wrote that as a chief lieutenant of Satan, Beelzebub led a successful revolt against the devil, who he described as the emperor of hell. As an aside, up until this point, I'd never really given the hierarchy of hell much thought, assuming it's neither a democracy nor a republic, but a dictatorship makes a certain amount of sense. Bayer describes Beelzebub as ruling over something called the Order of the Fly. Another writer, the 17th century French inquisitor, Sebastian Michaelis, wrote that Beelzebub was in the top three of fallen angels. All three were said to be former seraphim, with the other two being Lucifer and Leviathan. John Milton, in his epic 17th century poem, Paradise Lost, identified the unholy trinity consisting of Lucifer, Ashtaroth, and Beelzebub, with Beelzebub as the second ranking of the many fallen angels, second, of course, only to Lucifer. Makeless associated Beelzebub with the deadly sin of pride, but the 16th century German theologian Peter Binsford said that Beelzebub was the demon of gluttony, one of the other seven deadly sins. 18th century English writer Francis Barrett asserted that Beelzebub was the prince of false gods. In that same period, Beelzebub was commonly associated with demonic possession, including during the Salem, Massachusetts witch trials. That's a whole lot associated with his one Baal. 
Outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition, Baal makes an appearance in Islam, where the stories of both Jezebel and Elijah are recounted, albeit slightly differently. And that's it for Baal, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll lead off with the Nazarites. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.